Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41 through 47. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Welcome to our church. In Acts chapter 2, Luke recounts the events of the Feast of Pentecost some 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And just like Passover was a picture of the death of Jesus, and the Feast of First Fruits is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus, Pentecost becomes a picture of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Paul pictures the church like a loaf of bread and writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, quote, No matter how many of us there are, we all eat from the same loaf, showing that we are all parts of the one body of Christ. He was speaking of communion and the Lord's Supper. He was speaking of the participation that would take place in the early church as they would share a meal and that meal would become a part of their life and then they would become a part of each other's life. The chapter began with a miracle in verses 1 through 13. And the miracle, of course, was the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on the people who had gathered together in Jerusalem. It continued with a message by Peter in verses 14 through 41 as he gave them the gospel and people responded. The church began with a message about an empty tomb. The church continues with the message about an empty tomb. Jesus has lived. He has died on a cross. He's risen from the dead. The crowds were convicted. They asked Peter, what shall we do? Peter told them, repent from your sin. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 38. The believers continued in the temple. They gave their witness. They worshipped the Lord in verse 46. Often people will ask me the question, how do I become a member of this church? And I'll typically say, you go here. You give here. You serve here. 
But in order to answer the question from a biblical standpoint, and particularly from Acts chapter 2, we, we, we have to ask a different question. We have to ask another question. It is, of course, the question, what is the church? And you'll remember that Jesus identifies himself with the church in Acts chapter 9. And Jesus gives his life in part to found the, the church in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Earlier in his ministry he was speaking to Peter and he, and he talked about his confession that you are Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said it's upon that confession that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see the supreme business of God in this present world, in this present age, the supreme business of God is the calling of the sinner to become a saint and the gathering of the church. That's what God is doing. The supreme business of God in the present age is to gather his church from the four corners of the world. It's to call people out of darkness into to light. Someday, the task is going to be complete, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Someday, somewhere, the last Bible study is going to be taught. The last invitation is going to be made. There is going to be a person who, in their heart, turns from their sin, turns to the Savior, receives Christ as their Savior, and we're out of here. We're going to be gone. So in a very real sense... The institution of the church begins at Pentecost, and at least in one sense, the institution on the earth of the church is going to be complete with the rapture of the church. With the rapture of the church is going to come a remnant, and that remnant, the apostate shell, is going to remain. It's a Christian carcass of sorts, filled with the dead, filled with empty people, filled with a shocked group of individuals who are going to show up here. I'm hoping. I'm hoping this happens in my lifetime. I'm hoping there's going to come a day when we disappear and in grief and despair, people are going to show up here and they're going to go, where is everybody? Where have they all gone? Frederick Donald Coogan said, quote, the purpose of the church in the world is to be the worshiping and witnessing spearhead of all that is in accordance with the will of God as it's been revealed in Jesus Christ, unquote. And I think that that's right. The purpose of the church in the world is we worship the Lord in part. We witness to a watching world. So what does this newly formed church do? In the second chapter of Acts, we find them engaging in Bible study in, chap in, in chapter uh, 2, verse 42. Prayer and worship, verse 42, verses 45 and 46 and 47. Fellowship in verse 42. Sharing and caring, verses 44, 46 and 47. 
the Lord's Supper, verse 42 and 46. And then, amazingly, participation in the supernatural, verse 43. I want to pause for a moment and I want to dial it back. In the early church, no one was forced to become a Christian. Someone might have said to you this morning, it's Mother's Day. Mom, what do you want? I want you to go to church with me. I wish I would have talked about this last week so that mothers could invite all of their unsaved family and friends. You know what I discovered this week? That other than Christmas and Easter, Mother's Day is usually the most well-attended church service in America. Kids come with their moms and, and they go to church. In the early church, no one was forced to become a Christ follower. You didn't become a Christian or a follower of Jesus or a lover of Jesus under threat. As a matter of fact, the threat began the moment you became a Christian. When you became a Christian, that's when the pressure from the world began. When you became a Christian, that's when persecution became evident and ridicule constant and ostracism and isolation and ongoing problem and even death. Being a Christian and following Jesus wasn't something that you did for fun or to be accepted or so that your family would continue to love you. And so we understand something. That whatever it means to be a Christian and whatever it means to be to follow Christ, you have to do it voluntarily. You have to do it from your heart. You have to do it not because you have to, but because you want to. And so membership in the church, in verse 41, look what it says. Then those who gladly received his word, this is the preaching of Peter from the earlier part of the text, they were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The preaching of Peter was intended to produce conviction. It was intended to make people aware of their sin and the problem of the necessity of a Savior and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And with that conviction brought a question, brethren, what shall we do in verse 37? Peter has told them, hey, look, this Jesus who you killed has come back to life proving that he is, in fact, God's Messiah. And they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and believe and be baptized. Our culture hates the biblical concept of sin and will not tolerate those who embrace a biblical view of sin. The moment that you say, there's something wrong in this world, and in my heart, and in my life, the world will bring pressure and say, whatever the problem is, and whatever the solution is, it doesn't lie in Christ, and it doesn't lie in Christianity. They're going to look for solutions to their problems elsewhere. 
We live in a world where they believe in evil, but they don't believe in sin. And let me tell you the difference. Evil is something that people do to one another. Sin is something that we do against God. Sin is a transgression against God. It's rebellion and disobedience to God. It's, it's living your life in such a way that you say, I don't care about God and I don't care about Christ and I don't care whether or not what I do is forbidden in the Bible. But you'll note that those who gladly received the message of Peter, the message that he preached, they were baptized. And note, it says, that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That is, to the people who were in the upper room earlier in the chapter, to the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. And the word added is interesting and valuable. Older Bible translations will sometimes insert at the beginning of this text or at the end of the text, the church. That is, the word, they will add the words, they were added to the church. And the italicized words, to them. Neither phrase is in the text. The text reads, the Lord added those that were being saved. The real intention is to show the growth of the church. The, the word translated added literally means to place forward. That is the placing of certain things next to other things already in existence for the increase of that which was already in existence. What is already in existence? The apostles and the disciples have come to a place where they believe. They believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. They believe the ministry of Jesus. They believe the teaching of Jesus. We might think of this as being added to the company of the apostles and the, the 120. But more importantly, they are added to the Lord. When the Holy Spirit fell on the, uh, the 120 in the upper room, they were added to the Lord. They were members of his body. They became what the New Testament calls a part of the flesh and bones in the deep mystical sense of the word. That's what Paul means when he'll later say, we being many are one body joined and fitted together. You see, the truth is you can't really be a member of any church, really, that has a New Testament name unless you have a right relationship with God and Christ. It is possible that you can walk through a door. It is possible that you could subscribe to a creed. It's possible that you could say that you believe this or that. It's even possible that you could go here and give here and serve here. And there's something wrong with your heart. You've never actually become a Christian in, in the truest sense of the word. In the biblical sense of the word. You've never known him or loved him or trusted him and so yes people can go here and they can give here and they can serve here but in actuality in order to be a member of the universal church of Jesus Christ you have to have a right relationship with him you've got to come into friendship and fellowship with him the members of the church 
were to share the common life of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, these people were convicted of their sin. They were convinced concerning the identity and the mission of Jesus. They were added to the Lord. That is, that they were made members of his body. In their addition to them, and in their addition to them, they gained the virtues of his life, Christ's life, the value of his death, the benefits of Christ's sacrifice, the task of proclaiming the message and work in the world. No doubt these men and women included devout men and women who came from the four corners of the then known world. And as they returned to their lands, to their towns, to their villages, to their homes, they left and they were members of the body of Christ. But some stayed. Membership in the early church was preceded by repentance from sin and baptism in water. The early church embraced faith in the Lord Jesus as the divine redeemer, which is illustrated by Peter's entire sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. And so the people had to be added to the Lord before they could be added to the church and added to one another. So what did it mean to belong to the church in Jerusalem? It meant repentance from sin, faith in Jesus, regeneration, if you will, baptism in the name of the triune God. Remember when we ended Matthew last week in Matthew 28, 19, he said, go into the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so the membership in the church resulted in the meeting in the church. Look at verses 42 and 43. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So what did the first church do? What was church? What did it mean to have church, to be a church? Again, we might think of these as the ordinances of the early church in at least a couple of ways. Baptism is not an ordinance of Christian fellowship, but rather an ordinance that indicates entrance into that fellowship. You don't become a Christian when you're baptized. You become a Christian when you receive Christ as your Savior. You become baptized because you are a Christian and Jesus is your Savior. It becomes a picture, if you will, an outward display of an inward existence. Some of you are married. You had a marriage ceremony. Um, there were vows that you took and there were rings that were exchanged. When you get married and you exchange vows and you put the ring on, is, is, is the presence or the absence of the ring the proof that you're married? In one way, perhaps. If you take the ring off, do you cease to be married? Of course not. And by the way, is it possible to be married without a ring? 
Of course it is. So it becomes the type and the picture. It really is a, a picture of love. It, it's an outward display and confession. And so baptism isn't an ordinance of Christian fellowship, but rather an ordinance that indicates that you have participated, if you will, in that entrance. Christians often meet and they talk about ordinary things. It's probably happened this morning. You came to church and you asked about children and grandchildren. When you, when you say, Happy Mother's Day, it's almost impossible to not talk about a mom or children or grandchildren. Can you go to church and talk about the Broncos? <laughs> At this church you can. Can you go to church and talk about a number of different pressing issues? Of course you can. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you don't have passions and interests and obligations. But the church's deepest devotion belongs to our spiritual life and to Christ. In other words, we come to church primarily not to get caught up in what's going on in our life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that you not have that conversation. But what I am saying is that at some point, your conversation to, should turn to the things about Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy in your life. We encourage one another. We minister to one another. We strengthen one another. We worship God. We glorify him on the earth. And Paul lays this out in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, unquote. God has found you and saved you in Christ. Paul talks about leaving darkness and going to light, leaving sin and going to life. So we worship the Lord and we witness to the world with the gospel. In Matthew 28, 19, it says, remember the last week, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And remember what we learned last week. Last week, when Jesus said, lo, I am with you, he doesn't say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you. Jesus is present with us in our fellowship. And when he says, to observe all the things that I've commanded you, that's the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine consists largely of all the things that Jesus said and did. And so when you read Matthew, which we just finished, and Mark, and Luke, and John, it isn't just to fill you in on what you may have forgotten, but to remind you who you are, what we do, and who it is that you love and serve. 
When somebody gets saved at our church, and by saved I mean they come into a right relationship with God in Christ, they receive Jesus as their Savior, they turn from their sin and they embrace the Savior, and they say, what should I do now? And I say, you should read the Gospel of John. You should read the Gospel of John because it is a book about your Savior. Don't you want to know about the person that you've entrusted with your life? who is the forgiver of your sin and the lover of your soul and the transformer of your future. We can safely say that the apostles' doctrine are those things that are contained in the Old and the New Testament. Paul speaks of the church's gifts of apostles and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service or the works of service. The apostles' doctrine began with the oral traditions at first that were spoken of in these early moments and then preserved for us in the New Testament documents. You see, all of the stuff that you've read in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John, in the book of Acts is going to be lived out. And so, we might think of the apostles' doctrine as the inspired writings of the apostles. We might also think of them as the inspired teachings of the New Testament documents. So that when Paul writes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, these are the inspired writings. We love, listen carefully, we love the teachings of Jesus because we love Jesus. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? We love Jesus, and so we love the teachings of Jesus. Now we've got to go one step further. We love Jesus. We love the teachings of Jesus. And the fact that we love Jesus and we love the teachings of Jesus is evidence that Jesus is in our life. Doesn't that make sense to you? We love Jesus. We love what, te what Jesus teaches. And so it becomes type and a picture of the evidence of his presence in our life. And so obeying the teachings of Jesus is one evidence of that new life in Jesus. And so the word of God provides light for the mind, food for the heart, complete instruction for the believer. A church's health and strength is closely connected to the preaching and the teaching and the personal study of the Bible. This is why simply coming here on Sunday is never going to be enough. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking you to leave. I'm glad you're here. I want you to be here. But there's a reason why Peter teaches a Monday night or a Monday night men's Bible study and Mary and others teach women's studies on Tuesdays and Thursdays. In other words, there's ministry that's taking place that includes God's word because the truth is the health and the vitality is going to be in part based on our willingness to commit ourselves to the study of God's word. And this is why since the beginning of this church, I have literally devoted myself 
to teaching you the Bible. Over the last 25 years, I've taught through the entire book of Matthew, the entire book of Mark, the entire book of Luke, the entire book of John, the entire book of Acts, the entire books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the entire books of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the entire book of Revelation. I've tried to make my way so that you would understand and know it and love it and believe it. And guess what? Commitment to the apostles' doctrine is also a remedy against error. I've so, so much wanted you to know the truth. And I've so, so much wanted you not to be deceived by lies. And then fellowship. What does that word mean? And what did it mean to those who continued steadfastly? When Luke is writing these words and he's describing what we just read, what does he mean by that? Most Bible scholars believe it has something to do with the regular habit of the saints in their meeting one with another. And this is why Paul will later write, do not, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of son. Fellowship is another evidence of our new life in Christ. Remember what I said to you before? We love Jesus, so we love what Jesus taught. What did Jesus teach? Didn't he ultimately say, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? But he also said something else. He said that you should love one another. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. There's no way you can love one another if you keep ditching one another. If you keep isolating from one another. If loving God's word is evidence of the presence of Jesus in your life. Fellowship is another evidence of the new life of Christ inside of your heart. We love the saints because Jesus loved his disciples and commanded his disciples to love one another. And so the evidence of this fellowship would manifest itself in the desire for the new believers to be with the people of God and to minister with the people of God and to share with the people of God. We cannot, I repeat, we cannot have church without each other. I spend a lot of my life by myself in my study. And I value the time and I, 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 I can't do what I need to do for you unless I spend that time. But that's not church. Church is when I'm with you and when you're with me. The Christian life was designed by God to include fellowship. The word saint is never used in, in the singular construction in the New Testament. Did you know that? There's no place in the New Testament where you just simply read saint. It's always saints, plural. The reason why it's always saints, 
plural is because the saints are saints in friendship and fellowship with one another. The Holy Spirit works in the church. I'm not saying he doesn't work in individuals, but the Christian graces manifest themselves in relationship to one another. Guess what? If I said to you, are you kind? Are you patient? Are you good? Are you, do you suffer each other? Guess what? Those characteristics can never take place by yourself. Or maybe they can and you go, yeah, you know what? I'm really kind when no one is around. I'm really patient when no one is around. You don't even know how good I am when I don't have you to make me bad. See, you're laughing because you get it. There is no such thing as kindness and goodness and patience and suffering without each other. And you might go, wait a minute, Gina. Okay, kindness, patience, goodness, I can agree with, but not suffering. I can suffer all by myself. And in one way you can, but not in a meaningful way, not in a biblical way, not in a way that really matters. This is why the Bible says that we're to bear one another's burdens and we're to divide the sorrow. And we can't do that unless we're together. Our fellowship is in Christ. Our fellowship loses its meaning and value when Jesus is forgotten. The church was never meant to stand between the sinner and the Savior. The church was meant to be a mechanism whereby we could minister to one another, whereby we could divide the sorrow so that we could share the joy if we exalt Jesus, we exalt and value the church because Jesus purchased the church with his blood in Acts 20.28. 20, the church is the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 1.23. The bride of Christ, Ephesians 5.23. And in Revelation 19.7, Jesus loves and cherishes the church and promises to sanctify the church, Ephesians 5.29. Jesus says the church is his body, Romans 12.4. His flock, 1 Peter 5.2. His family, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And so there is <laughs> doctrine, fellowship, and look what it says the breaking of bread. This is the Lord's Supper. The breaking of bread might mean the ordinary habit of eating a meal, but I'm going to suggest to you. It can't mean only that because there's nothing extraordinary. Can you imagine? They got saved. They believed Jesus and they continued to have lunch and dinner. Well, see, you laugh when I say it that way because it makes perfect sense to you. Of course, they continued to eat. People eat, especially if you're an Italian person. That's the way Italian people solve all problems. What's wrong? Let's eat. 
Just when you say the words, what's wrong, and then whatever they say, you just go, let's eat. But he, here's part of the point of, 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 it's got to mean this. The breaking of bread almost certainly speaks of the ordinary habit of having meals. But again, I think part of the point that is being made is that they became, in a very real sense, one family with one table. More likely, it means obedience to Christ in the taking of the elements of bread and wine, remembering Jesus' death and sacrifice. So did they eat? Yes, they ate. But did they eat in a new way, in a special way? Yes, they're eating in a way where they're remembering the death and the sacrifice of, of Jesus. And, and again, it, it makes more sense that they steadfastly and consistently observed the Lord's table or what we call the Lord's Supper. Later in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we learn that the Christians gathered together on the first day of the week, that Sunday, and they broke bread. Sometimes we will break bread. Most of the time, though, we break tortillas. But it's a form of bread. We figure out a way to minister to one another and encourage one another with food and fellowship. Whether it's manja on Friday or feeding the homeless during the weekend. During the early days of the church, a love feast was held in connection with the Lord's Supper as a kind of expression of faith and unity and fellowship. And every once in a while, we actually try to do this here, where we have like an agape feast. But in the agape feast, the last one we had, my brother came, and he made jambalaya, red beans and rice. Yeah, it's like a Cajun song. Catfish pie, jambalaya, filet gumbo. Yeah, it's hard not to be happy when you're eating Cajun food. But guess what? It would appear that abuses crept in. People began to take advantage of one another. And those abuses caused the agape feast or the love feast to disappear. Because guess what? You can eat in such a way that you honor God and you can eat in such a way that you dishonor God. But in the beginning, they were looking, let's just for purposes of discussion, just for a moment suggest that what if there is a component in which the ordinary things about life took on a brand new meaning as we ate in relationship to our love for and co commit, commitment to Christ. That might be this, but it probably means the Lord's Supper. The Bible doesn't tell us how often we're to do it, just that we're to do it often. And so we see prayers. We have to keep with the context. What does he mean when he says, now... They remain steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers... I'm going to suggest to you that, again, it's habitual and steadfast in the context. It would seem that the early church prays. They pray as individuals, but they pray corporately. What does that mean? It must mean that corporately they began to pray for guidance, pray for preservation, pray 
for strength. In other words, they would pray as they studied the apostles' doctrine. They would pray as they conducted themselves in, in fellowship. They would pray as they embraced the Lord's Supper. They would pray for the task at hand. With prayer would come dependence and selflessness. With prayer would come God's favor and God's power. With prayer came the intercession of the Holy Spirit who would seize our souls and begin to control our marriages and control our conduct. And think about it, in all of those contexts, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Think about what you're reading. What happened when the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the sacrifice and remembrance of Jesus and to prayers? Fear came upon every soul. In what sense? A sense of awe, a sense of wonder. With this strange new society, with the strange new meetings. And see, this is part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is when church becomes so rote and so repetitive and that you make the decision, you go, why should I go to church? I'll, I'm just going to watch Gino online. And then all of a sudden you go, I'm not even going to watch him online. You know what I'm hoping? I'm hoping that things will begin to happen that rarely, if ever, happen online. You see, the purpose of our posting these messages are online isn't so that the church will ditch. I understand that there are circumstances in our life where we can't come to church. We have issues where we can't come to church. We have health issues. We have children. We have grandchildren. We have this. We have that. I get that. I really do. But what I'm hoping for is that church will become a place where there's a supernatural manifestation because you're here with each other, ministering to one another, praying with one another, encouraging one another. There was a sense of awe and holiness and fellowship. And so what is happening? What was happening? Fellowship in spiritual things led to fellowship in material things. And then it also led to a manifestation of the supernatural. And so there was solidarity in the church. In verse 44, it says, Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Spiritual unity brought about a kind of a material unity. The early church was marked by this incredible solidarity. We might think of this word, even though it sounds redundant, as group unity, solidarity. This, combined, this included combining resources. The early church began to see the issue of need in a brand new way. What did they share? All things. Where were the subjects of the solidarity? Together. 
Some have suggested that the early church practiced a kind of communism or socialism, but nothing, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Do you understand the difference between communism, socialism, and what the text is saying? You may not be able to sense it, but I'm going to spell it out for you. Communism and socialism is what's yours is mine. Biblical Christianity is what's mine is yours. I'm not asking you to give me anything. I was just wondering if you might receive something from me. If I could give you something. If I could make your life a little bit easier. If I can contribute some way to you so that your life is fuller and richer. You'll notice that I rarely, if ever, ask you for stuff. We don't even take a traditional offering. I don't pass the plate and I go, now pull in your wallet and pull, take out your biggest bill and wave it before the Lord. <laughs> I'm hoping you would just go, man, I'm out of here. That doesn't mean we, we don't have an offering. We just take it in a non-traditional way. We have agape boxes. You give according to what's on your heart. You give according to your generosity. What God has said. The early church began to see this issue of need in a brand new way. And what did they share? All things. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that that, that that expression, that expression, all things, occurs 221 times in the Bible. All things are of God, 2 Corinthians 5.18. All things are yours, 1 Corinthians 3.21. All things work together for good for those who love God, Romans 8.28. Jesus is the head over all things to the church, Ephesians 1.22. The believer can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, Philippians 4.13. We're given permission to ask in prayer all things, whatever you ask in prayer. Matthew 21, 22. Time doesn't permit me to quote every passage of the 200 passages. But we become aware that all things are possible for those who believe Mark 9.23. We're to prove all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. God is the source of all things. We're given resources and privilege and power and purpose. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Or verse 20, we give thanks for all things. We give thanks for what we have. And we give thanks for what we don't have. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Look at the description. Unity, solidarity, simplicity of heart, and joy. Church was never supposed to be the place where you show up and you go.
to shame you into joy. Joy, in order to be joy, it has to be joy. Here's the point. The early church had an atmosphere that allowed the church to be a place of unity, solidarity, simplicity, praise. This early church consisted of Jews. They didn't immediately sever their ties with the temple. The temple would eventually be destroyed. And so they broke bread from house to house. This seems to be a reference to daily meals and homes. William MacDonald says the joy of their salvation overflowed into every detail of life, gilding the mundane with an aura of glory. I love that statement because all of a sudden the ordinary became extraordinary. Who thought that making burritos in a church kitchen could be so much fun? Who knew that ministering to children for vacation Bible study in school could be so much fun? Who knew that men's ministry and women's ministry could be so much fun? Who knew that that Student ministries could be so much fun. And so the Lord adds to the church those who are being saved because the church is an organism, not simply an organization. You don't join the church the same way that you join the Republican Party or Costco or a country club. You don't just show up and go, look, I want to be a member. So give me a members only jacket. No, we don't join the church by simply embracing the church's philosophy or creedal theology or even the church's activities or participating in the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Membership begins with being born again and filled with the Spirit and the evidence of the presence of Jesus in your life means that you love what Jesus loves and you love the people that Jesus loves and you love the things that Jesus loves and you want to do the things that Jesus loves. The church is called a body and a building and a bride. And so what's the mission of the church? We're tasked with loving God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Glorifying God, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. We display and demonstrate God's grace, Ephesians 2, 7. We evangelize the world, Matthew 28, 19. We baptize believers, Matthew 28, 19. We instruct believers, Matthew 28, 19. We encourage or edify the believers, 1 Corinthians 14, 16. We disciple and discipline believers. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You can't disciple the unbeliever. And you can't discipline the unbeliever. There's a reason why I don't spank my neighbor's children. They're not my children. A little kid across the street between the ages of two and three, felt it was his duty to run naked around the block. 
I get it. Some people allow their children to do whatever. But it doesn't make sense to disciple and discipline the unbeliever. They're not believers. Would you please do what the Bible says? I don't believe the Bible. Oh, then we have to have a different conversation. Did you know that God loves you? Jesus died for you? That there's a solution to the problem of your sin? The church isn't primarily designed for the unbeliever. But every once in a while they show up. They come to our church. The only thing that we can reasonably ask them to do is to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. But for the church, we have something else that we can do. We care for the saints in times of need, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We provoke Israel to jealousy, Romans chapter 11, verse 11. We prepare rulers for the millennial kingdom, Romans 8, 17. Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. You see, I'm preparing you. One day, you're going to go to heaven. And when you get there, you're going to look pretty weird when you're looking around and they're going to go, where did you go to church? Calvary, South Denver. Didn't he ever tell you anything about this place? Didn't he tell you what to expect and what you're going to see and who you're going to see when you get here? And you might say, I'm a little bit shocked and surprised I'm even here. <laughs> yeah, the two things that are going to be most remarkable about heaven is that the people you see, that, see there and the people you don't see there. In the early church, we're called believers and brethren for good reason. As a church, we're supposed to restrain wickedness and we're to promote what's good. And that's what we want to do. What do all Christians have in common? We're added to the church by the same spirit that fell at Pentecost. We become witnesses of, his, of the resurrection of Jesus as we experience the new birth. We receive new life and we exercise new powers and we entertain new hopes and we believe God. miracles in your life in your heart in your marriage and in your family so how do you become a member of our church go here give here serve here but you'll never be a member of the church of Jesus Christ until you go to the cross. Give your heart to Jesus and serve him. But I've run out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so much want to be a church that loves you and that loves each other and demonstrates that love for you and the love for one another.
in the way that we really serve one another, in the way that we really minister to one another, in the way that we really submit to one another and encourage one another and provide for one another. And so, Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray for the ones who love you and they're trying to find their way in this church. And I pray for the ones who are uncertain about their own spiritual condition. That they've never really turned from their sin and they've never really accepted you. And they, that they've never demonstrated that evidence by loving your word and loving your people. Loving the Bible and loving Christians have never really been a part of their life. That Lord, I pray that something supernatural would happen the most amazing of all supernatural events, that, Lord, you would change that person's heart. Even now, Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he can change my life, and that I was meant have fellowship with God and I was meant to have fellowship with the people of God and that's what I want so I commit my life to you and I pray these things in Jesus name amen let's stand